0: You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 12. And why don't we go ahead and stand? We will uh, read through uh, from verse 14. Then we're going to play hopscotch and jump down to verse 17. <laughs> And read through the rest of the chapter so um before we do just uh want you guys to be aware that uh chad is gone today he's down teaching at calvary chapel in lapine and um there the pastor down there uh didn't have any income coming in and the economy and everything. He had to move back to where his job used to be in Portland. So um, they're praying for a pastor in Lapine. And about once a month, one of our elders goes down and teaches and fills in the gap there. And um, so we're going to pray for Chad. He was texting this morning. He's feeling really sick and he might have already taught by now, but we're going to pray for him anyways. Well, we always read first before we pray, don't we? I don't want to. Get out of tradition. Why don't we read first? Uh, Let's look at verse 14 of chapter 12, where it says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then as you jump down to verse 17, Repay no one for evil, or excuse me, evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray, and I will pray for Chad. Lord, um, thinking of Chad this morning, uh, just pouring out his life for this community, pouring out his life for this church, and uh, just pouring himself out today for um, brothers and sisters in Lapine. Uh, he's just sick on many different levels this morning. Uh, he doesn't get sick very often. So this is, I know it was serious, Lord. I just pray you touch his body. Um, Lord, I pray that you would just give him energy, give him strength. Uh, Lord, that he would boast in his infirmities and in his weakness. That you would just be made strong uh, through your word and through that vessel, Chad, down in Lapine. Uh, Just pray for our time in this text today, Romans chapter 12, Lord, as we look at just real practical, outworking, street-level love from chapter 12, Lord. Lord, that we keep our eyes on the mercies of God, as verse 1 tells us, that it's because of your mercy that we would live out any of these practical uh, applications. And so, Lord, just uh, infuse this truth into us today and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Well, from the end of the Civil War to present day, the name McCoy could scarcely be spoken without adding the name Hatfield alongside of it. As uh, these families became embroiled in one of the longest and most infamous family feuds in the history of... Of America, the Hatfield-McCoy feud lasted from 1863 through 1891, and it involved two families—one from West Virginia, one from Kentucky—being uh, split between uh, the with the Big Sandy River. But the Hatfields of West Virginia were led by uh, the father William Anderson, aka Devil Ann's Hatfield while the McCoys of Kentucky were under the leadership of Randall, old Randall uh, McCoy. Sound like a couple of friendly guys, huh? No? Okay. Uh, Some believed that the feud was started by what was thought to be a stolen hog. That often is the case, I'm sure. Others say the Confederate Hatfields killed one of the McCoys who'd returned home after volunteering for the Union Army during the Civil War. But whatever, the start, whatever started the feud, one act of vengeance and violence leading to another in the name of family honor resulted in the loss of numerous lives through multiple ambushes, murders, mock trials, executions, five of which were old Randall's own sons. The two southern families, although they ended the feud in 1891 and shook hands in 1976, took reconciliation one step further. On Saturday, June 14th, 2003, the official end to the Hatfield-McCoy feud was marked when the families signed a truce in an event broadcasted by the Saturday morning early show on CBS. Now I wonder, both families claim to be Christians, uh, one, uh, I believe it was uh, devil, Ann's, actually repented and got baptized and became a, a pastor. But if they would have immediately gone to the scripture and gone to Romans chapter 12 and read the verses here, verse 14, verse 17 through 21, uh, in light of God's mercy, I wonder how that story would have turned out. Uh, it would have been a lot different, I'm sure, if they would have read and brought application into their lives as they would have read verse 14 that says bless those who persecute you bless and do not curse now we looked at this verse about four weeks ago we're just going to touch on it shortly just because it 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 does cling to and tie into the rest of the chapter Uh, we see here in these verses who we're to love practically who we're to reach out to and love on Uh, As chapter 12 began, the practical section of the book of Romans, uh, verses, or excuse me, chapter 1 through 11, were what's called the indicative. Uh, It lays out God's plan of salvation for us. It indicates, if you will, that we are all sinners, fallen short of the glory of God. We're not saved by works of righteousness that we have done, but we're saved by the works of righteousness that Jesus has done. And we're justified by grace through faith. We're also sanctified in that Christian life. We're we're conformed more and more into the image of Christ by his grace, once again, through faith. And so it's with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, as the Phillips paraphrase puts verse one here, it's with eyes wide open to the mercies of God that we can live out the practical life that chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 lay out for us, that we would Verse 1, give our lives up as a living sacrifice, uh, that we would be worshipers. Verse 2, that we would not have our mind conform to the world, but we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we wouldn't be haughty and proud but we would think sanely about ourselves, that we would condescend to the people around us and lay our lives down, humbly serving them, that we would be connected to the body of Christ, using our gifts for the edification of the church and the display of Christ. These are all things that we've just gone through week after week. I think this is week nine of uh, being in Romans chapter 12. And we will finish it today, don't worry. I finished it in first service, so I've got to finish it in second service. <laughs> but, but now we see some more practical, street-level approach to love in blessing those and loving on those who are persecuting us. The word persecute means to ensue, or to pursue, or literally to hunt for you to end you. So who are we to Love. We are to love on those people who are set out for your demise. They are set out to end you, whether physically they literally want to like wipe you off the face of the earth, or they're hunting for your job and they want your position, or they want that promotion, or they just want to belittle you and, make, and demean you and make you look uh, like horrible in front of others, specifically for the name of Christ. But we're looking right now to love on those who oppose you and are actively campaigning for your end. Is there anybody there that's like, I've got someone after me right now. Is there anyone that's after somebody right now? That, that would be you. Uh, now, verse 14 speaks of persecution. There's a few different ways that that could be lived out on the earth. Right now, you know that there's people in other countries, that the government is hunting them down. The government of their country, the magistrates, are hunting them down to end them because they are Christians. And we're told in the book of Hebrews to pray for those people and to remember them as if we were chained right there with them. And that may be us someday. That could be within our lifetime that here in America we are put in chains for bearing testimony of the truth of the gospel. Uh, We studied a few weeks ago there's a more subtle form of persecution that might be more of an intellectual hurt or insults. uh, Making fun of us believing in the the writings uh, that have been handed down through centuries uh, through the prophets and the, the spoken word of the Holy Spirit. But in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says that you are blessed. That word means you are very happy. How happy are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely because of me? Maybe that intellectual persecution, or maybe they're keeping you from social groups, or you didn't get the promotion because of what you believe, because of what you stand up for. But it was because of that the apostles turned home in Acts chapter 5. They returned home after having been imprisoned by religious leaders, having been beaten, having been mocked, even having been commanded not to preach Jesus' name. And it says in Acts chapter 5 that after the leaders um, had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know, the apostles took Jesus's command and Jesus's, you know, sermon on the mount, literally. They were very happy that they had just been beaten up. They were very happy that they had been in prison, that they got a chance to stand up for Christ. That they were even counted worthy to suffer for that high and holy and beautiful and wonderful name of Jesus. And it's in those instances that we have the opportunity to overcome evil, not with evil, but with good and with love. And if we don't do that, we will be cursing people, at least from the inside. And we will become persecutors ourselves. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 32... But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. You know, when Jesus comes in the world, man, he just flips the tables over. You know, his economy is so much different. And he's telling us, and and he's telling us through the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, to do good to those that are persecuting you and that are hunting for your end. Now, we studied a couple weeks ago that, that our real enemy isn't the liberal or the homosexual or the one that's attacking Christian rights or anything like that, but that Ephesians tells us that the real enemy are, is uh, the rulers of darkness of this age and against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.26 that these people have had their senses Uh, kidnapped, that they need to escape the snare of the devil because they've been taken captive by him to do his will. And so how can our enemies, if you will, how can they be freed? Well, One way is through praying for them, like Jesus said, praying that the forces of darkness would be pushed back and that these people would be liberated and freed from the chains of darkness. We also can liberate them by showing the love of Jesus not necessarily and also not by doing a drive-by on the abortion clinic, you know, or picketing outside necessarily, picketing not necessarily bad, but with the picketing, is there love? You know, is there reaching out and blessing towards those? Now, few options here that we're given, just in verse 14, we can either curse those who persecute us. And that word curse means to doom them, to pronounce doom on them. It sounds almost like a medieval video game word or something like that. Doom, you know? Um, and yet, some of us do that to people through our heart, through our action, pronounce doom on them. I mentioned this, but I think it's so funny. I'm going to say it again. The old Chinese proverb, that if your enemy wrongs you, by each of his children a drum. You know? Maybe if he loses sleep or something, you know, then then he'll have that doom that I've been hoping for. I recently have become quite active on the website Pinterest. I find it quite Pinteresting, if you will. Um, It's kind of like Facebook, but you get a lot, okay. Uh, It's mostly for girls, but, (laughs) but I go to the history section and the comedy part, okay, I get all my good material from there. Anyways, but on the comedy section this week, I saw just a huge list of how to retaliate against your enemies, and there's some great things on there, all right? So take notes. First of all, fill their cream-filled donuts with mayonnaise instead of cream, all right? <laughs> Cut up confetti and put it in their defrosters and turn the fan on in their car so that when they turn the car on in the morning, whoo, snowflakes, okay? Okay. Hook an air horn up to the back of their doorstop so when they open their door, Hur! you know, woo. okay. So lots of ways to exact revenge and yet such is not the way of Christ necessarily. Okay. Um, if you're in the midst of persecution, sometimes we think those are one way to curse, right? Or, or, or a lot more severe ways to curse them. But I would submit to you this question. Would I testify and continue testifying if my life was in danger? Would I testify if my life was in danger? How about this? Would I maybe not outright deny the faith, but would I trim down my theology just a little? Do I really want to stand up for creation right now in my biology classes, my teachers pushing evolution down my throat? Do I really want to stand up and say Jesus is the only way or that Jonah's story is absolute truth? Now, if you trim back your theology in the midst of persecution or if you ceased in testifying in the midst of persecution, you are still pronouncing doom on these people. You're still pronouncing doom. We don't want to crave their approval. We need to fear man or God and not man. God able to not only destroy our body, but destroy our spirit in hell as well. And so there's this other option that's given to us by Paul that we would respond through blessing and loving on them. The word bless in the Greek is eulogio, which is where we get eulogized in the English language, that we speak well of individuals and speak kindness to them and cause them to prosper and actually even find things to be thankful for about them. Obviously easy to do when people are nice, but what about when they're wicked? And God says for us to bless them. Through prayer, if you look at Matthew 5.44, I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay, so everyone in this room's got someone in their mind right now. Okay, let's just be honest. I'm thinking of Rich. Who are you thinking of? (laughs) Someone who's been persecuting you rich is thinking of shelby so it's the circle of life (laughs) who's persecuting you all right or as we'll get into verse 17 people that are acting evil towards you in some capacity all right let me ask you this do they know without a shadow of a doubt even in the midst of the conflict that you love them do they know you love them are they convinced that you love them even though they hate you all right even if they hate you, even if they're trying to murder you or kill you, do they know, hey, I'm slaughtering this guy, but I know this, he loves me. All right, let me ask you this. Do you pray for this individual? As Jesus says, pray for those who spitefully use you. That's strong language. Or those that actually abuse you or persecute you. Now, listen to the text. It is not telling us to just refrain from doing evil. Even the unregenerate, even the non-believer can do that. Just stop doing evil towards them. But what it's telling us to do is to actually bless them, to actually wish and will their good, to be actively seeking their good. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, when we are reviled, we bless. In God's economy... He makes friends out of enemies through love. The you know, one thing I love about Jesus is he never asks us to do anything that he himself hasn't had to do. You know, he is that great leader that leads from the front. And you'll remember when he was hanging on the cross and he had like a railroad spike type nail driven through his medial nerve and his wrists. And doctors will tell us that causes such shock and such pain through your body. It will cause your jaw to lock up through the extent of, of the pain. Uh, in his the same nail driven through his feet and not to mention the scourging and everything else. But while he was there on the cross suffering, he looks out at those who had physically or through the trial demanded his crucifixion and he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So did Jesus curse his enemies or did he bless his enemies? What about Stephen in Acts chapter 7? As he was having his head bashed in by the rocks that Saul was throwing and that Saul's friends were throwing, when he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Blessing or cursing his enemy? Those that were hunting for his end. We have our father. We have our our role model. We have our example who's gone before us. We have our Lord leading by example in this area. The encouragement for us is to not fight the way they do. Because the world knows how to play that game. And they'll win at it. (laughs) You know, you might get back at them with the confetti and the defroster or something like that or something more severe and they'll just retaliate and come right back. They know how to play that game. And so we're told in verses 17 through 21, more ways to combat this conflict. In verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. We pay no one evil for evil. The involuntary response of our heart so often is revenge and retaliation, which as John Stott says, these are absolutely forbidden to the followers of Christ. We tend to have this deep itch that just needs to be itched in regards to revenge and retaliation. We consume it. We just do nothing but think about how to get back or how to make them feel bad about what they've done, how to make them feel the way we feel, totally wounded, totally hurt. We begin to love the stories about revenge, sometimes even more than romance, if that's possible. Our culture has been given over to this cycle of violence. It's a culture of revenge, And there's two general mistakes that we often make when we're in the midst of conflict, whether it's in persecution or in, you know, just day-to-day living, even amongst Christians. First of all, we tend to respond to the offense by pretending that it was never evil at all and just totally disregard that an offense ever took place. This was actually the philosophy of Nietzsche who had the genealogy of morals, said the path to being a superhuman was to just shrug it off and treat it like it never was anything, whether it was murder, violence, rape, abuse. But what this view does was not take in the seriousness of the offense and to realize it's ultimately not an offense against me, but an offense against the Lord. And as we've been studying through the book of Romans, the gospel actually confronts sin. The gospel actually calls sin out. We also err in the sense in that we would forgive or not forget. Forgive but not forget, rather. Telling someone, I will forgive you, but I will still hate you, and I will draw this out forever in order to punish you or manipulate you to get what I want. There was the first century poet and philosopher, Heinrich Hein, and he said, one should forgive one's enemies preferably after they've been hanged. And that so often is our heart. Oh, I'll forgive them after they get what's theirs. No kidding. So what is love? What is the love that we're told to live out in street level? And in Romans chapter 12, well, to love your enemy is in fact to blame them. Paul calls evil, evil. Jesus stands up. Not as a coward, he stands up when he sees wickedness, when he sees the glory of the Lord being defamed. And we we blame people. We stand up and, and you know in this blame. Even to forgive somebody is to blame them. You go up to one individual after church today, you put your hand on their shoulder and you say, Hey, just want you to know. I forgive you. And they're gonna say, What for? What did I do? You know, even if they did do something, well, you know, the way that you were talking to me the other day and the gesture you gave me when I cut you off going up the grade, you know, <laughs> oh, that was you? Yeah, you know, well, you know, to, when you say you forgive them, you're blaming them for something. It's going to confront their view of their self-righteousness at that moment. And they're going to realize I've sinned. In some capacity, I've sinned. I'm going to need to humble myself. I'm going to confess and, and repent, There's going to need to be change in my life. It's also not loving to pretend that their evil does not exist. Understanding it is an offense against God. It needs to be confronted. As Matthew chapter 18 tells us in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Now, what is the purpose of this confrontation? And what should the tone be? We're told in Galatians that it needs to be a tone of love. We're to speak the truth in love. What is the purpose of this? Is the purpose to, you know, well, you really hurt me and I'm going to really hurt you, you know? And, and I just want, I hope you resist so that I can do the rest of Matthew 18 and I can bring you in front of a bunch of other people and tell them what you did to me. And I hope you resist them and I hope I can take you in front of the church and really give you a what for and bring shame out about all your sin that you've done to me. Is that the purpose? What's the end of this verse tell us? To gain your brother reconciliation and restoration of fellowship and relationship and communion that is the end that is the game to love somebody is to spare them and to pardon them to spare them retribution you know repay no one evil for evil to be able to talk to them and to say hey look what you've done and and i'm no better i've done things similar what you've done is worthy of this but you know what Here's mercy. Here's grace in the midst of that. Miroslav Volf was a Croatian Protestant theologian and intellectual public speaker. He's been called one of the most celebrated theologians of our day. He said, we are in forgiveness to condemn the deed, but spare the doer. It's kind of the old, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin mentality. Condemn the sin. It is an offense to our creator, to our God. But man, you affirm and you show love to that doer. Just as in 2 Corinthians, you read of that guy who had been having uh, horrible relationships with his uh, stepmom, and he would had the church discipline process worked out through him, and he'd repented through the church discipline process. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, you make sure that you love on that guy, and you reaffirm your love to him, lest he be overcome with sorrow. And he's repented of that sin. He's washed clean by the blood of Christ. You make sure you affirm your love to him. He's useful for me. And so we're to bless them. Now this is, we're to bless those that hurt us. This is, is this not hard? I mean, you guys know, you've been there. You've got those people coming through your mind that are hurting you, actively campaigning for your end or working evil against you, gossiping, slandering, spitefully using you and treating you. You know, is this easy stuff? Oh, I'll just be good to them. Oh, I'll just bless them. Oh, I'll just pray for... Man, this is stuff we cannot do on our own. This is stuff that we need the power of the Holy Spirit in. And what we're not to do is to repay evil for evil. It's all over the scriptures. 1 Peter 3, 9, Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. In 1 Peter two twenty one, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Again, the one who is led by example, Jesus. He was reviled. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He had his beard ripped out. He was betrayed by friends. And what was his demeanor in return? He just trusted his soul to the one who's able to judge righteously. He knew Romans 12 was coming up someday when Paul would write it down. You know, He knew that vengeance is the Lord's. The Lord will repay. But it's not up for us. It's not for us to repay Though it's our natural sinful instinct to go out on a campaign of vengeance, and we love every movie and every story that tells us that. You know, I was thinking of um, the, the remake of the movie True Grit that just came out. It used to be a John Wayne movie, now it's some other actors, I can't remember his name. But um, let me read you the little trailer teaser for True Grit. And I want to do it in like a tough western voice, you know. After a drifter murders her father. 14-year-old Maddie hires an alcoholic U.S. Marshal to help her exact revenge. You know, and we're like, rewind it and play it again, you know. Oh, revenge, turn it up on the surround sound. Man, we want the full force of revenge and it'll fuel our fire and then we'll push stop and we'll go out into the community and we'll get what's coming, you know. Not so with Christ. Not so with Christ. One wise man said, Hit your enemy with an uppercut of compassion and a left hook of love. That's how you combat the enemy. As Matthew chapter 5, 38 says, you've heard that it was said at one point, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And then he goes in to repeat what we've already read in the Beatitudes about blessing those who curse you, love your enemies, pray for those who spitefully treat you. But we're not to avenge ourselves. Now, in reading this, we often think that this prohibits self-defense or fleeing from evil. And that's not the case. These things actually stop evil from happening. And even fleeing from evil stops evil from happening. But we are not to retaliate and take vengeance. That's the Lord's. If you take vengeance into your own hands, you become like the enemy. If you've read or seen the movie Lord of the Rings, uh, and Tim Keller often uses this as an example, uh, that if you use the evil Lord's ring to defeat him, you will become like the evil Lord. So instead, you need to defeat him through self-sacrifice and suffering and humility. We're told in verse 17 to not only repay no one evil for evil, or, uh, but also to have regard for good things in the sight of men. This means to give thought. That word have regard. It means give thought. Think about doing good to that enemy in such a way that the people around you will watch you loving on your enemy. They will esteem this. It will be praiseworthy. They'll know you're doing something good to your enemy. And you'll be able to give glory to God. I like how the Phillips puts it. It says, don't say it doesn't matter what people think. But see that your public behavior is above criticism. Man, people are watching you. You are a representative. You are an ambassador of Christ. It matters what people think. And you're to give thought to this. Think things out. Remember verse 2 at the end? It says that we may know what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Being a spirit-filled believer changes the way that we think. And we can think about the conflict that we're in. That our weapon of warfare would now be a good weapon. And people will notice there's something different about us. Now, verse 18 tells us, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, real quick, let's make a note. If you have a pen, underline the word all at the end of verse 18. And go to verse 17 and notice that we're to repay no one. Maybe underline no one. And to have regard for good things in the sight of all men. There's like a total encompassing here of the people that are to be loved on. Everybody. All of our enemies. All men. Nobody should be repaid evil for evil. We try to make little hoops to jump through. We try to be like the Pharisees who when Jesus says, love your enemy, they say, oh, well, technically, who's my, or he says, love your neighbor. And they say, oh, well, technically, who's my neighbor? You know, because I live out in the country and no one lives around me, you know. And so Jesus sells the parable of the good Samaritan. It's anyone that's within our sphere at the moment needs to be loved on. And so we see in verse 18 that we're not responsible for people's actions, but we are responsible for our reactions. To refuse to repay evil is to refuse to inflame a quarrel. But that's not all we're told to do here. We also have to take the initiative in positive peacemaking. There's two clauses here in verse 18. First of all, if it's possible. Secondly, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And so we're to be those peacemakers that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers in the Beatitudes. Sometimes it's not always possible. And sometimes the ball is out of your court and it doesn't depend on you anymore. But our heart should be that of Christ to live peaceably with all men. I love the Bible, you guys. I love how realistic it is. I love how it just assumes conflict that when you get a bunch of sinners together, you know, on a regular basis, we're going to be rubbing each other the wrong way. My mom always uh, had a phrase for people that were, you know, rubbing her wrong, and she'd call them sandpaper people, you know. And she said, "Oh, I had another instance with a sandpaper person today." And you know, I'm like, "Mom, did you ever think you were a sandpaper person?" You know, to some people, <laughs> you know, we just rub on each other, right? We're all sand. We just, man, there's little things that we do, and man, we're polishing off our rough edges. You know, our little kingdoms that we want to build get torn down, and that's not a bad thing. Thankful for. The sandpaper, view. the more biblical would probably be iron sharpening iron, right? That's probably the nicer way to put it. But in the midst of all of this peace, peace attempts, attempted peacemaking, here's what peace is not. Peace is not never dealing with the problem or just kind of putting a band-aid on it. Most of you are too young to remember back before World War II when Neville Chamberlain had conferences with Hitler And he would go into these meetings with Hitler just to appease and satisfy these tiny little grievances with Germany without ever tackling the big issue of Adolf Hitler himself and his goal and his agenda. None of those little issues were the problem. Hitler had a major agenda that he ended up acting out on not long after these conferences. Peace is not peace at any price. You know, those of you that were alive in the 60s and 70s, you know, you remember the, the peace and just peace, love, and hair grease and all of that good stuff. All we want is peace at any price, but that is a cop-out whenever truth and honor and purity and God's holiness are involved. You cannot settle for peace minus holiness or peace at the expense of truth. As John Stott says, sometimes it isn't possible to fulfill this because either people are not willing to live at peace with us or they lay down a condition for reconciliation that would involve an unacceptable moral compromise. If possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceable with all men. Finally, peace is not telling people lies to make them feel better about their condition before God. Oh, you don't really need to repent That's not how Jeremiah preached it. Jeremiah preached it. You must stop now. And everyone said, oh, Jeremiah, come on, you're overreacting. The Bible says that these were false prophets who would say peace, peace, peace when there was no peace. Don't be a logjam when it comes to making peace is the idea here. Don't be the one that holds it up because of your little grievances. I love... One uh, well, of my friends, Sandy Adams, he's kind of my comedic pastor friend in Georgia. And he says, a bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the trouble? You know, go, go and have your little fight and murmur and, you know, it's, man, there's a lot of trouble coming. Don't do that. If possible, leave your sword in it's scabbard. Verse 19, beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So there's an opportunity here to overcome evil with good. By not taking revenge and trusting in the Lord. If, if you go out and you try to take revenge, man, you will become bitter. It's been said that a bitter person is like someone who sits their hand in a vat of acid waiting for their enemy to come by so they can fling acid in their face when they walk by. All the while they're being eaten up uh, in their bitterness. And so check yourself, watch yourself, ask the Lord to search your heart that he might lay the ax to any root of bitterness that you might be having. Vengeful people are often also the most sorry people as they're poisoned by bitterness. Instead, love and do good and show care and kindness and mercy and compassion towards your enemy. Make cookies for your mean boss or for that mean individual in your life and set that steaming hot plate of cookies down on the table and say, man, I was just thinking about you this week. Don't tell him what you were thinking about him this week. (laughs) Just encourage him. Let him know that he's loved. You're praying for him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Give him some fruit to taste, you know. That God is good. They know we are Christians by the love that we have for one another. And Leviticus 19.18 is quoted here. This passage on uh, vengeance. uh, It says, uh, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You know, the vengeance is the Lord because he only knows the circumstances. He knows enough of the circumstances to make the right judgment. And no matter how right you think you are in the conflict, there is something, there is some level of your flesh that will cloud 100% truth. The Lord knows the 100% truth. We tend to paint our enemies in kind of a two-dimensional light. And the Lord sees the 3D, HD, TV, you know, version of the whole situation. He will avenge for me. But if I take vengeance for myself, we're making him sit down and stop doing what only he is able to do very well. Also, when he does the the act of revenge, he stays holy while doing it. While I often fall into sin and bitterness and that bitterness continues. The RSV version says, leave it to the wrath of God. It's God's prerogative, not ours. Verse 20, we are finishing this chapter today. 10 weeks is enough in the book of Romans chapter 12. Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. I love what John Wesley said back in the 1700s. He was a one of the church fathers involved in the Great Awakening revival. But he says, feed your enemy, feed him with your own hand if it be needful. Even put the bread into his mouth. Don't choke him with the bread. But could you imagine just that love If like, man, you're like on Pinterest, on the history section, saw an American soldier wrapping up a big wound on a, on a little German soldier and he was just weeping in the pain. I was like, man, that is awesome. That love of like wrapping and caring for someone that was just trying to kill you. Man, that is awesome. That is what this is all about here. He says, feed him with your own hand if needful. Put the bread into his mouth. Heap coals of fire upon his head, that part of which is most sensible. And then he quotes a poet of his day. So artists melt the sullen ore of lead By heaping coals of fire upon its head In the kind warmth the metal learns to glow And pure from dross the silver runs below This heaping coals of fire on their head It really speaks of a restraining of their evil And I know what you're thinking No, 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 just tell me what these coals of fire are about Coals of fire sound good I want to dump some on my enemy's head right now Well, there's a few different ways to interpret this idiom First of all, it could be an Egyptian interpretation, which meant bring them shame. And they would carry coals of fire on their head as a symbol of shame and remorse and penitence. It would be a dynamic symbol of a change of mind, a change of heart. The coals of fire also could be intended to heal, not to hurt, to win someone over, not to alienate them, not to shame them into repentance. But I love this interpretation of this coals of fire passage. And it would mean to share your fire with them. You know, back in the day, it was really hard to start a fire. And so whenever there was a camp that was moved or a fire went out, you would go to just the nearest neighbor who had a fire going, and you just put some coals into some sort of a kettle or pot, and pack, and typically on your head, you would pack these hot coals back. And what this could be referring to, and I think it's a pretty good rendering, would be to share your fire with them. That the whole village could see like, weren't those two guys at odds with each other? But look, this guy's bringing warmth and life and you know, the ability to just have comfort into this other man's life by sharing his fire with them. Even our acts of kindness, though, could become a form of judgment. There's one interpretation of it that means a biblical judgment, as when if an enemy was trying to scale your wall, you would dump fiery coals on his head, and the, the interpretation would be through your good, kind acts, you're combating the evil deeds that are coming towards you. But what's not taught here is retaliation, which would be towards their hurt. Rather, restraint is taught for their help. Jesus would oppose people, but Jesus also would flee from danger. And so there's there's something to be said, too, here in this text regarding abusive situations. That it would be okay to remove yourself from violence and to not hurt these individuals, but to help them and to restrain even their evil by removing yourself from the violence, from the pain, from the hurt. Verse 21, do not overcome evil, but overcome evil with good. There is one way that evil is overcome, and it's with good. Wesley also said, conquer your enemies by kindness and patience. You know, we often, often think that a good punch to the face or some sort of a bullet or a knife or blunt instrument would teach them a lesson, but nothing will be more impactful to them than responding with love and kindness and blessing and praying for them. So here what we have in Romans 12 is a practical line upon lifeline picture of what holiness will look like for a person whose life is a living sacrifice in verse 1, who's resisting the world, we see in verse 2, and who's surrendering for what God would have them do throughout the rest of this chapter. If we repay evil for evil, we reduce, or excuse me, we add to the tally of evil in the world. But if we overcome evil with good, we increase the tally of good. And so, man, the bookends of the chapter, chapter uh, 12, verse 1 and and verse 21, these are the bookends of the chapter. Man, they really move us and motivate us towards living out this beautiful love relationship to the world. Even the Phillips translation says, don't allow yourself to be overpowered with evil, but take the offensive and overpower evil with good. We're going to go ahead and have the Uh, Worship team, come on up. And let's go ahead and set our Bibles aside and just prepare our hearts even for communion. And Lord, we know that uh, as we study this ending here of chapter 12 and we look at just conflict that we might have with the world or even brothers and sisters in the Lord or just those that would be hunting us down to kill us, to slaughter us, to end our existence. And Lord, we know that one reason you should be the one giving vengeance is because you are the number one most offended party in sin. Lord, even when David cheated on his wife and had an affair with Bathsheba and stole her from one of his mighty men of valor and then murdered that mighty man of valor so he could hide in his lie. What he writes there in Psalm 51, that all the while it was against you and you alone that I sinned. Lord, ultimately your glory is robbed, your name is defamed, And Lord, you are the one who's really offended by the sin, even by our offenses, Lord. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would give us the power and the strength to let you be God and to do your work of vengeance. Vengeance is yours. Lord, you'll you'll take care of it, whether that's on the day of judgment or whether that's through the magistrates, as we'll study next week in chapter 13, or whether that's through you even using our love to convict them and bring about repentance. Lord, you are good. You are the just judge. You see all aspects, Lord. And so even every instance that's come into our mind today, those individuals that have harmed us and hurt us and Lord, maybe even just physically abused us, verbally abused us, have stolen our livelihood, cheated us drastically on a business deal, gossiped against us, slandered against us, failed us, maybe even assaulted us, Lord, even sexually assaulted us. Lord, for some, just the, the level of abuse and hurt that, and evil that they've gone through, Lord, it's just, I can't comprehend, but you know, Lord, you know. Lord, we pray for our enemies right now, Lord, that would, they would be set free from the one who'd taken them captive as they've been doing his work, they've been fulfilling his plan. We pray for them, Lord. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for repentance. We pray for them to have a relationship with you. Maybe even for the first time, Lord. I pray that we'd even have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. Lord, this is tough stuff. This is a tall order. And we need your power. We thank you that you have gone before us. You have done it. And as Hebrews tells us, because you've done it, you sympathize with us in our situation. And you're a ready help in time of need. And Lord, we need you. And right now, we even whisper the names of the people under our breath who've hurt us, who've offended us, who need to be reached out to, who need to be lovingly confronted, who need to be forgiven, who need to be extended mercy and grace. And Lord, we pray that you would bring that about, Lord. That there would even be the reconciliation of fellowship and worship with these individuals. For those of you here today that there's a brother or a sister in this church that um, you've wronged them and you know it, you need to leave your gift at the altar. You need to go and be reconciled with them. Even today, even during this last song, you go get them and you can go out in the foyer, go out onto the sidewalk and just ask for forgiveness. Lord, when we were still in our sins, enemies of you, just completely trespassing against you and hateful towards you, wanting our own way, it was then that you poured out your life, that you sacrificed for us. You laid it down. And Lord, that just totally compels us to to do that for others, Lord. Or for those in this room, that they're still in that place with you of rebellion. Uh, Lord, they're living for themselves. They're living for their own pleasures. Living for the lust of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Lord, that today they would Come and receive forgiveness and if that's you today and you've just been living for yourself in rebellion against God you've yet to bow the knee to his lordship that he's the lord of your life and you've yet to receive the salvation that's been made available through his blood today man if you hear his voice calling you today respond to that voice yield your life to him Uh Receive into your heart just salvation and forgiveness of sins and a new heart, a new life. Be born again today. Let the Holy Spirit do a work in you that's just radical miracle of you being made a new person by the Spirit of God. And today you walked in these doors, an enemy of God, and yet he is right here saying, hey, peace has been made available. You take it. As every Christian in this room, we beg you to take it. We beg you to be reconciled to God. It will not end well if you remain his enemy. Yield to his love, yield to his grace, yield to his mercy today. And if you've done that, you can come forward during this last song and take the elements of communion and you can kneel. you know, in, in the altar up here, you can take it back to your seat. Just consider the the juice that represents his blood and the bread that represents his body that were broken and and wounded for your transgressions, for your sins. And man, just let those elements just be a reminder of the great price he paid to have his enemy become his friend. And let's thank him for that today. Let's worship. Come on up as you're ready.